This episode of Pressed is a recording of a panel discussion we had at the Slater Mill Historical Society in September 2018. If you were hoping to hear the conclusion of Bonnie and Dave's story, the episode featuring their conversation is coming soon. In the meantime, please enjoy this discussion moderated by Tori Malatia, President, CEO, and General Manager of the Publix Radio. Thanks to Slater Mill for this. Uh, it's really um, a beautiful place and uh, a great setting to, to have you all here. And thank you for being here. I know there are lots of things you could be doing tonight. You're missing all the cable talk shows. This must be very hard. Uh, so it's great to have, have you here tonight. Now, let me introduce a panel, because it's a great panel. Wonderful people have given a lot of time to be here. And I'm going to, do, I'm going to start from my far left, your right. So you see it now cancels itself out politically. Um, James Lutis is the Vice President for Public Research and Initiatives at Salve Regina University in Newport. And he's been the Executive Director of the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy for the last seven years. Um, as a center's representative, Jim frequently offers expertise to news outlets uh, like CNN, Associated Press, Washington Post, USA Today, Fox News, and National Public Radio. Uh, Jim has consulted about foreign policy and legislative strategies with um, Senator John Kerry, with the um, 2008 Obama transition team, uh, and it really has a thorough knowledge of, of those kinds of issues and obviously the Pell Center is a, a great resource for that. Jim, by the way, has a public television program with co-host G, G. Wayne Miller from the Providence Journal called Story in the Public Square. It's on WSBE-TV, Channel 36. It's also on YouTube. And on YouTube, by the way, all of the episodes, a huge library of them, wonderfully in-depth um, programs. Uh, all you need to do is go to YouTube, search for Story in the Public Square, and it'll come right up. Next is uh, Peter Wells. Uh, for 12 years, Peter has been the owner, publisher, and editor of the Providence American, which is a paper serving communities of color in Rhode Island. It's published monthly, and it's available free. It's advertising supported, so it's available at libraries, at Stop and Shops, at Shaw's, your neighborhood barbershop or salon. It just gets out there. It's amazing. Um, you can also read um, the latest at theprovidenceamerican.com. Don't forget the the, theprovidenceamerican.com. Peter is also the host of a public television talk show called In Another Opinion, which you can enjoy on WSBE-TV Channel 36, or as I do, on YouTube, just search for In Another Opinion. Peter moved to Rhode Island in 1995 as the regional director of the US Department of Veterans Affairs, a position he held for eight years. He also worked with the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. And then next to me, lastly, is Mike Stanton, who is the Associate Professor of Journalism, who is, ah, Anna, so not the only one, an Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Connecticut. Um, Mike is a lifelong journalist who has covered news and sports and served as an essayist, a critic, a feature writer over some four decades. He's perhaps best known as an investigative reporter. He won a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for uncovering corruption in the court system in 1994, and he served as the investigative team leader 
for the Providence Journal for nearly 20 years between 1995 and 2013. Mike, alas, does not have a TV program, but <laughs> he has written two books, The Prince of Providence, a New York Times bestseller in 2003, and his latest history, Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World, published by Henry Holt. And I'd like to thank the panel for being here today. Okay, um, so I thought we'd, we'd just start with getting to know our panelists a little bit. Um, and I'm gonna ask each of them to, um, to reflect on something uh, for about two to three minutes. Um, you all have a deep connection with journalism. Um, looking ahead from where we are now, what is your biggest concern for the state of journalism or media as part of the humanities and civic life? And what is your greatest hope? So what is your greatest concern for journalism and what is your greatest hope? And Jim, we can start with you. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> just one, right? Just uh, one single concern? Um, <laughs> So uh, I've, got, I've got a list that I could sort of wax poetic about. I could also clear my throat for two to three minutes. Uh, but what I wanted to do is talk to you about what um, I would describe as an environment of toxic information uh, that uh, permeates our public life today. Uh, and some of this is uh, the result of Americans who are making it toxic. Some of it's a result of the business model that media companies are operating other, and some of it is, frankly, the work of foreign powers. Um, the result of all of this is that media companies, whether you're talking about uh, traditional media companies like newspapers and broadcast uh, uh, news outlets, uh, or you're talking about uh, emerging and, and, and new media uh, companies like Facebook and uh, Twitter, are uh, having to re-examine uh, not just editorial policy, but corporate policy about what are they gonna allow in their pages and on their platforms. Um, the result, the, the, the truth is that the social media companies, because they have been pressured by Congress uh, uh, very adamantly about this for the last 18 months, are actually beginning to take some important steps. And we can talk about that a little bit more if you want. Um, the, the traditional media companies have by and large escaped real scrutiny. Um, and so I'll give you for example. In the summer of 2016, uh, the, uh, the online whistleblower site Wiki, WikiLeaks uh, released thousands upon thousands of stolen emails. Now we know, everybody will concede now, that this seems to be the result of a Russian uh, hacking attack on the Democratic National Committee. It exfiltrated tens of thousands of emails, and then it released them as part of an effort to, um, they said, to shine a light on the corruption within the Democratic Party. We know now from responsible reporting in a lot of different places, and also from testimony of leaders in the U.S. intelligence community, that this was part of a Russian-led effort to undermine the 2016 election. Now, the, the result of all this, and we can, we can argue a lot of these different points, but the result of all this is that uh, a lot of newspapers on their front page for two to three months had the latest breaking news from a Russian disinformation campaign. Does it mean that the DNC liked Bernie Sanders? No, it doesn't. That was true. Does it mean that there's a lot of money in American politics? No, that was true too. Shocker, right? Uh, does it mean that uh, any of the things that we read about that were so salacious 
so alarming, so controversial, so scandalous uh, have any less validity? No. But did a single American newspaper, the New York Times, Washington Post, Political, USA Today, did a single one of those actually report that it was well understood by a lot of folks in the national security community in the summer of 2016 that WikiLeaks was linked to Russian intelligence? No, they didn't. And so you've got that layer of toxicity layered on top now of a president who seems to be single-handedly determined to attack any independent source of information. Uh, whether, it, it, whether we're talking about uh, the press, the fake news, pick your favorite outlet, um, the Mueller investigation, the Department of Justice, anybody trying to expose uh, corruption at the highest levels is suddenly a threat because he can't control that narrative. Uh, the president so, went so far in the last three weeks to actually attack Google uh, and the search results that you might find online. Uh, and it's because uh, the, this president has chosen to try to control sources of information and those that he can't control, he seeks to undermine their credibility. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's contributing to a toxicity uh, in this information environment uh, that's a challenge to all of us as citizens and it's a challenge to the republic. Thank you. Peter? Thank you. Um, good evening. I, I believe uh, my biggest fear of the role of journalism in the future is, is and, and I'm talking about America, not, not internationally, is, is threat, threatened by instant news. Uh, I don't think that the internet is a bad thing, and I don't think that instant news is a bad thing. The issue with it is that People tend to draw and make decisions and judgments on information uh, without accountability and without credibility. In the old days, when I grew up as a kid, and I'm probably older than most of the folks in this room, we waited for radio, TV, and newsprint to give us our news. We didn't depend on making uh, decisions, uh, let's say, in an election based on what my next-door neighbor was thinking because they had access to a, a computer. We didn't make decisions, uh, very important decisions, about life and for our family and our, our children based on tweets. We made it based on information sources that we determined to be credible. And I think today, instant news um, has a negative impact, in, in many cases, on credibility. So, so that's my, my, my concern, is that we're losing that, that, uh, that, that credibility piece that we, where we know that the news we're getting has been, uh, it's been investigated, it's been vetted, and it, and it meets the tenures of, of proper journalism government regulation and uh, financial liability also plays a part in monitoring news pr production. I mean, let's face it, no one wants to get sued, but everybody does. But you won't get sued as uh, someone who's entering information on Instagram. It's your right to put anything out there you want. But it's also our right to make sure that we're understanding that there's more, maybe, to the background of a particular story that you're reading about. Um, the quality of information exchange, as I mentioned, is suspect. Tweets, Facebook, Instagram, they become the source for people to make decisions on life, and I think that's very dangerous for the country, 
not only for the individual and their family, but for the country as a whole. You, mentioned, you asked, Tori, what, what are one of the opportunities or, 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 or things that we think are good. I believe humanity, humanity in civic life period has eroded and is a problem, especially when people can express themselves with language that might not be used if they were face-to-face -to, -face to the person they were talking to and or about. They make accusations about someone else with no undocumented proof and then support these positions with a wink or a nod. My hope is that political leaders, celebrities, and public figures find their own humanity and begin talking to and about others with respect and dignity and set positive examples for our young people. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Mike? Good evening. Um, I'm usually pretty optimistic about journalism because even when times are darkest, that's when journalists rise to the occasion and their importance is more recognized. Um, I still believe it's a noble calling, the beacon of truth and in darkness. Um, but tonight I'm gonna start on a negative note. Um, that upbeat attitude does belie the cynical nature of journalists. You know, it was Teddy Roosevelt, trust buster that he was, still when journalists reported on one of his own, called them muckrakers. And he meant it in a derogatory term, but journalists, of course, embraced, embraced it and they took it as a badge of honor. But tonight I have to start with a nod you know, towards the dark times that we live in journalistically. You know, last Friday, a good friend of mine who's worked at the Providence Journal um, came to work, went to work on his stories as usual, got a call to go to the Human Resources Office, and handed his walking papers after 30 years and told to clear out his desk and be out by the end of the day. And do you know what his first day's reaction was? He looked at the editor and the human resources director and he says, well, what about the stories I'm working on? And he went home and he got up on Monday morning, another unemployed journalist, and he actually sat down and wrote one of those stories. And he had to write it at home because his key card had been deactivated so he couldn't get into the building. He had to write it uh, on his own computer and send it on his personal email account because his journal email had been deactivated. Um, but he did what journalists do, you know, in good times and bad. And I tell you that story not because I want you to feel sorry for him. He'll be okay. And he was one of uh, a group that were let go on Friday, the latest and the latest and the latest rounds. But I, I tell you that story because that's what journalists do. That's what they're all about. And, you know, I left the Pro Joe five years ago. And, you know, I feel a sense of mourning every day when I see, you know, the decline it's gone through. And my biggest concern reflected here in Rhode Island with the journal's de demise is uh, local news deserts. There are so many places. I went to a conference this summer, and there's a group called Report for America. I guess they're a beacon of hope. Um, they're trying to place journalists, young but experienced journalists, in out-of-the-way places like Appalachia and the Mississippi Delta. And I met you know, a young African-American man, very idealistic, and all he wanted to do was go back to his home in Mississippi and tell people what was going on. And this isn't red state, blue state, this is what's happening in your school board, what's happening in your town council, who's watching? The problem is that nobody's watching. The problem is, and this is not to castigate the good, hard-working journalists, uh, fewer and fewer who remain at the Providence Journal, um, but it's really to castigate their hedge fund overlords who are cutting and squeezing and taking the revenues that were once plowed back into the business. 
and they're using it to go buy a house in the Hamptons or have another steak or buy another sports car. And, you know, Gatehouse Media really is a predatory uh, company. They're the, uh, they, I think they publish 140 daily newspapers uh, in New England, uh, several hundred. They, they call themselves the largest uh, publisher in the country, and that's not good news. Um, you know, on Tuesday, ironically, of this week, another former colleague of mine at the Providence Journal, M.J. Anderson, who was laid off two years ago, again after 30 years, she published this remarkable e essay on a website. It's the best thing that I have read about the decline of the American newspaper. And it's a very personal but very sweeping story. Uh, MJ grew up in small towns in uh, South Dakota. And her great-grandfather published a little newspaper in a town of 800 people with a subscription base of 750. And her parents took over the paper when he died suddenly of a stroke. Other family members worked in journalism. MJ, when she was in high school, helped set type and wrote a, a local high school uh, column. And she wrote this remarkable piece about what it's like, you know, to be working, you know, coming up through 130 years of uh, newspapering in her family and basically be the last of her line with ink in her veins. And she wrote something really profound, I thought, that she said, you know, we all talk about there's two visions of the future. The hopeful one is that we're all figuring out a new model, and we don't have the answers yet, but there's a lot of exciting experimentation going on. There's nonprofit models, there's shoestring operations, there's online operations. You know, here in Rhode Island, we have National Public Radio has really uh, beefed up in, in recent years. Um, in East Greenwich, you have the East Greenwich News, an online website that's been very active fighting some very controversial moves in transparency in the government there. You have an environmental uh, nonprofit website called EcoRI where you can read about things that are going on in the environment that you can't find in the journal anymore. And so that's the exciting part. But the, uh, the you know, flip side of that coin, and I'm going to quote MJ because she said it much better than I ever could. The other much darker view is that newspapers will simply die in a process no one knows how to stop. In this view, what is happening to newspapers resembles climate change. And so I guess in closing on my opening remarks, I would say that as I tell my students at UConn, because sometimes I do wonder, why am I teaching young people to go into journalism? But then I see their faces and their inspiration. And, you know, today we're at, I, I teach at UConn, we're at Mansfield Town Hall showing them how to use open records. And I asked the town clerk, how many FOIA requests, freedom of information requests do you get? And she goes, we, we never get any. So you think about who's watching the store. And this is a, this is a problem. This isn't just a feel sorry, played a little violin for journalists. This is a problem for all of us because I think journalism really is the connective tissue of democracy. And it's what holds us together. And it's the absence of we can't even agree on the facts, let alone have a debate about policy that's really tearing us apart. And I think the hope, the silver lining, is that you see a lot of newspaper subscriptions have soared since Donald Trump was elected as people realize we've got to be engaged, we've got to be informed, we've got to know what's going on. And I see that with my students, too. It's not just an older generation. So we'll talk about it more tonight, but that's my, my view. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, all of you. Um, by the way, I read MJ's um, piece today. It's in Politics Letters. Is that correct? And uh, I sent her a little note, but uh, it's really lovely piece, beautifully written. Um, so 
I just want to pick up on a couple of things. Um, Peter, you talked about the instant news cycle. And Jim, you talked about um, the way in which we were sort of duped into thinking that certain things were legitimate when they were illegitimate. Um, and then, Mike, you were talking about newspapers, especially this kind of local connection, local investment in, in news, because most of the papers that are threatened at the moment are actually local papers as opposed to those national papers like the Washington Post, the New York Times, and so on. Um, but here's a question. Uh, the question is that if we have um, uh, the ability to build a strong local press uh, in communities that are inquisitive, um, either online or in print or some other means, what is stopping that? Because it seems to me that what happens often is that uh, websites and uh, say not, uh, websites that are aimed at, at local or hyperlocal news end up being in the instant news cycle. It's like they just default to that, and they're just firing out stories. And of course, when that happens, they're not necessarily checked. They're not necessarily as thorough as they could be. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying that you sort of get into that rhythm. Um, what is what is stopping a kind of sensibility about questioning data um, before it's shared uh, before a local community? Do you, do you think it's a cultural thing? Is it just like knee-jerk now, or can it be changed? I think uh, it's, it's probably all of that, mm -hmm. but I think there's a certain amount of distrust um, in communities today. Um, not so much that uh, using the fake news phrase, but uh, if you pick up this particular daily, uh, someone says, well, that, that's the Republican version. If you pick up this other daily, uh, that's, that's more the, you know, those are the, the, the liberals, the, the Democratic folks that are writing for that paper. And then in both cases, uh, as Mike alluded to, um, there's ownership that controls both of those. So I think people are somewhat skeptical as to whether or not uh, what they're really getting is solid, good information. Is, but, there, but, is there a path back to well, re-earn that trust? Yeah, I think there is. But, but you also mentioned the instant, new, instant news or the internet and that sort of thing. Um, most of the stories that you'll see on the internet, from my, at least my experience, has been there is no data. It's, it's a conclusion. And I think that's part of the problem. Uh, that people become more skeptical if they're not seeing some of that data behind some of the storyline. But yes, there's, there's just definitely a, a road back, um, and, and I, I think that'll be when there's a, less of an assault on, on media and journalism. So I um, kind of want to hear what Mike has to say about this, but uh, you know, what's, to the question, what's stopping building, what's stopping folks from building a new news model that's going to produce the kind of results that we expect. Um, I, I think part of part of it is, frankly, consumer behavior. Uh, so most newsrooms in the United States today are data-driven. In other words, they know what tweets are being retweeted. They know what stories are getting clicked on. They know how long you're staying on their website and looking at a particular story. And the stories that actually draw people in are typically not the stories that we would want 
to have him drawn. It's the it's the sex scandal. It's the triple shooting. It's the it's not the the deeper dive into sort of the big pressing issues of the day. Uh, and there are there are outliers, but if you go into a lot of newsrooms, you actually see even tote boards uh, with which, which story is trending today. And you know what? That story that trended today, it's going to get a follow up story. And so big, deep civic questions are not necessarily leading those editorial decisions. Data and consumer behavior is. And so the bigger challenge that we have, I think, is, is less about the behavior of the media companies in the newsrooms, and it's more about all of our behavior as consumers and purveyors of information. Because not only are we on the receive mode, in this day of social media, everything we like, tweet, retweet, and share we're spreading information and we're contributing to that ecosystem. And so part of our obligation as citizens, I would argue, uh, is to actually think for a minute, stop. And you know, so I teach, a, I teach a freshman writing seminar at Salve. And there are three basic questions that I teach my students to ask themselves when they're considering whether or not to use a source in a paper in my class. And one of, it is, one of the questions is about the, the, the overall credibility of the author. Right? What are the sources that the author uses? And overall, is their argument compelling? If you can answer those three questions, it's reasonably safe to assume that it's a pretty credible source and you can, you can use it safely in my class. We need to have those same questions about the stuff we're sharing on social media. Right? And, and if I think if we, if we as consumers of information begin to behave differently, then I think that there's hope then that maybe industry might follow. I totally agree there's that consumer component uh, appealing to the lowest common denominator, if you will. You know, the irony is, for all this, you know, woe is journalism, there's an amazing amount of great journalism out there if you know where to look for it and find it and you're a discriminating reader. Um, but you're right, there's too many. I remember at the Journal, there was this whole operation, which intensified, I understand, from friends after I left, of counting the clicks. And the social media thing makes me uncomfortable. I'm on Twitter, and I have this you know, rule about think before you tweet, and you'd be surprised how many tweets I delete before I send them, and, you know, because they're out there. And, and it, it's also like as a journalist, you're trained to be objective and dispassionate, and Twitter's all about stirring it up, stirring the pot. And sometimes that's fine um, to be provocative as a journalist, but I also worry about that. And you know, some of the young, uh, younger people they don't get their news. I mean, there are established brands, and I think with the ocean of information, it helps to distinguish if you're an established brand like the New York Times. Um, but a lot of the young people will follow specific journalists on social media, and that's how they'll get their news, links to their stories. So journalists have become brands. And the other economic factor, of course, I, th I still think you have to distinguish local versus national news, electronic versus print, even if the print is a website. Because what's happening in cable television is you're just, you know, it's a lot cheaper to get two people shouting at each other than to go out and send somebody out into the field to Syria to really do some serious reporting. And, you know, Leslie, I think it was Leslie Moonves, um, during the uh, 2016 election, um, he was just beside himself with joy that Donald Trump was making such a splash because it was great for ratings. He said, this is great for... C he, he actually made a comment. This may not be great for democracy, but it's great for CBS. Well, obviously, that's kind of ironic. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, 
So Neil, Neil Postman once said that um, in, its, in its quest to get viewers, the highest number of viewers, and, um, that television news, he was talking about television news, but it's, it's applicable to anything, um, was um, relying on sensation, sensation, outrage, things like that. But it gave the impression of an ungovernable world. And it tended to dispirit the, the, the polity because it just ruins it. It's like you can't do anything. There's nothing you can do. It's so awful. But when you think about the internet, um, in fact, when Mark Zuckerberg was, was giving his testimony, um, he was talking about something like it was almost like you could get choked up. It was this notion of this new, wonderful, democratic place in which we would mobilize and organize and reinvigorate the, 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 the citizenry and get things done. Those were the hopes of the internet in the early days. Al Gore said this in 1996. We're talking about the information superhighway that's going to transform us and make us better as a democracy. I, those hopes likely have some um, connection to reality, but our experience lately is that a lot of that isn't happening. How would you I, reconcile I just It's funny you mentioned uh, Zuckerberg because there was a column in the Wall Street Journal by a technology and communication executive. I, I want to credit him. It was his idea, Paul Bergevin. But he was talking about the similarities and differences between what he described as two of our founding fathers, James Madison and Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and basically, he said, James Madison and our founding fathers, and by the way, I teach press history at UConn, and you'd be surprised at how nasty the partisan press was and the names they called George Washington and the comments about John Adams' flatulence um, in the papers. But James Madison and the founding fathers, they helped devise a social contract for governing that appealed to mankind's better angels, but they recognized our darker impulses. And you know, I think Madison wrote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. So they set up checks and balances. Now fast forward to Mark Zuckerberg sitting in his dorm room in Harvard, and he comes up with this idealistic, you know, we're all lovey-dovey and we're gonna share information and it's gonna be the greatest thing, you know, to have all this free information on the internet with no, you know, recognition of those darker impulses. And it's kind of comical and, and disgusting when you see him spinning in Congress now and, oh, we didn't realize these unintended consequences, or maybe we did, but we devised a business model based on clicks, and uh, there have been studies that show that negative and false information spreads faster than real information. So I just had to kind of make that contrast. Okay. So. Toy, I'd like to, I, I'd like to share a, 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 a situation that happened to me. I, I sp spent about four years or so working in the Caribbean when I was still with the government, and, uh, and, and I was based in Puerto Rico. And there was maybe four or five newspapers in Puerto Rico. Uh, one was English-speaking, and the rest were, of course, Spanish. Uh, the Spanish paper that everyone read, no matter who you were on the island, was referred to as the blood paper. Because every time that publication came out, there's some murder, some, something, something mass incarcerations, or something going on that, in full color, caught the attention of, of people on the island. While the San Juan Star, as, as I said, was the only uh, English written paper at the time, uh, brought a lot of news in from New York Times, Washington Post, and so on and so forth to give a perspective of what was going on in Washington. But that, that blood paper, and, and 
to today, I can't even tell you what the name of the paper was other than it was the blood paper. But uh, that, that dark side that you, you mentioned, Mike, uh, is very important for catching attention, unfortunately. And of course, that drives ratings and ratings drive uh, distribution levels and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cycle and a circle that needs to be intervened and need to be snipped and it needs to change. But as we've all said, I, sus I suspect, uh, what is the perfect model? Just one quick thought on the on the Facebook uh, yeah. question. So um, there's a 2013-2014 study in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, and it's a it was a study uh, funded by Facebook but conducted by research scientists at Cornell University that looked at the idea of of emotional contagion, which is a psychological uh, phenomena. If uh, somebody comes into a room and they're in a really bad mood, they can make other people be in a really bad mood too. And Facebook's question was, well, can you spread emotional contagion through social media? And so unknown to the 800,000 people who were part of this uh, experiment, uh, they, uh, Facebook curated the, the sentiment of the things that showed up in people's news feeds. And then they tracked this for with, with content analysis software and sentiment analysis software. They tracked whether or not the people responded with uh, emotionally positive or negative. Or the, could, could you make them mad if you just gave them negative news? And the short answer is yes. And that's sort of shocking and alarming that there was sort of uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 a psychological experiment done without people's foreknowledge. But what's even more remarkable about it is that this cuts to the quick of the Facebook business model. Because it wasn't long after that that Facebook went from just being able to like and share stuff. Now you can like it, you can love it, you can hate it, you can make you cry, it can make you laugh. So they went deeper on understanding exactly what your emotional response to this. Because Facebook fundamentally is about delivering precision targeted advertising. Not just to who you are as a consumer, I like Tide but to your psychographic profile based on everything you've ever done on that platform. And so the greater degree of fidelity that they got in terms of how you are emotionally responding to the stuff that you see gives them a deeper understanding of who you are as a consumer, and it helps them drive further content to you. This comes back to what we're doing because Mike made the point that so much of social media is about fueling passion. Facebook is designed to figure out what you're going to be passionate about, and then they sell your advertising to foreign governments, to consumers, to people like the Pell Center at Selvia Regina University who want you to come to an event next week with John Kerry, right? It, it, but that is available to everybody. And, uh, and, and on this point of passions, I'm reminded of uh, one of the best books that I read in graduate school, uh, The Treason of the Intellectuals by Julian Benda. He's a French philosopher, published 1925, 1927. Uh, and in it, he warned that the unbridled uh, 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 stoking of passions in that generation by, by uh, specific newspapers would lead to a great cataclysm in Europe. So 1925, 27, he predicts the Second World War. I'm not saying that we're on the cusp of a third world war because of social media, but the, the constant fueling and stoking and manipulation of tensions does not end well. So I've got to stick with the ideal here just for a minute. I, I, I understand where you're coming from on all of this, and, but let's go back to the ideal. This notion that you can create communities online that help inform 
mobilize, organize, inspire groups. And Peter, I'd like to ask you this question because you have a publication that is aimed at communities of color to try to raise in particular those issues as well as those wonderful things, you know, celebration things that, that are accomplishments in the communities that help keep that community tied together, feeling stronger, more connected. So you're trying, you're doing this with, well, you, you have an online service too, but I mean, you're doing it with the printed paper. Um, that, that isn't, and I mean, you're doing, you're doing that for that purpose, not to create a kind of subculture that is um, walled off from the rest of the community. I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm just asking. It's because it's, it's an interesting, it's very similar to what people thought the internet could do. Well, no, you, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, the, the purpose of the Providence American is, it, as my mission statement would suggest, is to, to raise the, uh, uh, to, to focus on the social economic development of the community. Now, what, what does that mean? I mean, it, it means to know what's going on, to be aware. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, to, be, to make life decisions for yourself and your family. Uh, lots of things go on at the uh, General Assembly every day. Um, uh, everything doesn't get printed. And that which does get printed um, uh, often is printed uh, toward the majority community rather than the minority community who has a stake in the same issues. Now, uh, so, so the paper tries to, um, to focus on those kinds of issues and bring attention and light to those kinds of issues. Not to wall off from the rest of, the, of Rhode Island, as uh, if we were talking about the state of Rhode Island, because the, 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 the community of color is, is across the board. Mm -hmm. And I, I prefer to even use that term rather than minority community, mm -hmm. uh, quite frankly, because uh, uh, if, if you walk or drive down any street in, in, in Providence or in, in Pawtucket or wherever you are, Woonsocket, um, it's a diversity of people. So there is no section Although at one time, I think there were a lot of medias that, that actually wrote to those sections and those sections only. Uh, so, so, yes, uh, we tried to, to, to improve the, uh, uh, the information gathering in the community um, and focus on more of the stories that may not be uh, printed in the Providence Journal on a given day, but, uh, but are necessary for the community to understand that this is happening. Yeah, I, th I think that... Um smaller local papers targeted to specific communities or areas. I think, I mean, how's your business doing compared, I mean, if you kind of had to look at it now versus when the journal was really stronger. I mean, because I see newspapers like the Valley Breeze really thriving, and, and I, I'm off on the numbers, but they're not that far from the Providence Journal circulation number now. Well, no, they're not, and, and I think uh, in that respect, uh, the, the Valley Breeze has as, as acquired smaller productions, yeah. and, and that has helped in its growth potential. But no, you're absolutely right. Niche papers, uh, as I, I like to refer to it, um, mm -hmm. are, are doing well. Um, they yeah. might, you know, when I acquired the, uh, the, the, uh, the rights to publish the Providence American in 2006, business was really good. Mm -hmm. In 2008, business went down. Uh, of course, newspapers across the country had a problem at that time. But one of the things that, uh, that I found that was, that was pertinent 
especially since we're a free newspaper and we, we, we survived strictly on advertising, that there were still people who wanted to talk to that community specifically. And, and for that reason, it still thrives. I mean, businesses could be, could be a lot better. Sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> but here's the thing. That's because people need you. And I look at, you know, papers like yours. I look at, like, there's, a, there's websites in Connecticut. Um, and what I look for is in, independently produced, you know, th thought-out stories as opposed to let's put a couple of people to rant at each other and voice their opinions, where you're talking to people, you're presenting information, you're presenting both sides of the story. Um, I mean, there was a reporter in Connecticut who lost her job at a newspaper, and she started, she was a political junkie, and she started a website called Connecticut News Junkie. And it's an online website, and she makes it work, and she covers the statehouse. And so there are these little niche places you have to go, and like I said, we're, you know, my students, they're building the bridge to the future. Mm -hmm. And we don't quite know what that future looks like, but we know two things. We know there's an appetite for news, and I think people are starting, you know, post-Trump, when you saw the national paper circulation soar and the Washington Post is hiring hundreds of journalists, and I think that people are starting to recognize they're willing to pay for it because you get what you pay for, and they're realizing the value. That's true. Yeah. In, in the case of the Post, though, they also benefited from a bazillionaire owner who... Was willing just to dump money into it. Well, that's the other model. You've got John Henry with the, the Globe, and yeah, I mean that's the, the yin and the yang. I mean, it's some people look to them as our saviors, and other people say, well, that's kind of an uncomfortable place to be in to be relying on some, you know, how long is John Henry going to want to be putting money into the Boston Globe if it's not, returning a profit. Um, and you don't want to be at the mercy of something like that. But you look at our organizations like ProPublica that have really thrived and grown and produced great journalism, and I, I couldn't quote you who their funders are, but um, they've got some breadth there. And, uh, and I know nonprofits that I've talked to about serving on the board of have talked about you've got to have a wall there between the donors and the editorial content. They can't be you know, expecting a free ride. So... Yeah. I, I want to get to Q&A here, but first a couple that have already come in. Um, we collected some comments earlier, and I'd like to ask you guys to respond. Um, this is from Rick Brooks. Uh, I'm aware that journalists generally strive to present both sides of a story. That's in quotes. But sometimes this can result in providing equal time to a very marginal organization or point of view. A not-so-theoretical example might be a statehouse rally that attracts thousands of participants while a counter-rally attracts just a handful of protesters. Furthermore, the smaller group may resort to sensationalist tactics in order to draw news coverage. Is there a way for news outlets to assign a relative weight to each position rather than giving both positions equal billing? And how can news outlets avoid rewarding the sensationalist tactics with coverage that is disproportionate to their weight. Who would like to take that? Well, I mean, you report the facts. You report that 300 people came out to the State House to rally, um, you know, for one point of view, and 10 people came out for the other point of view. Um, I think you're seeing that. I mean, that's the whole issue of, you know, one guy says the earth is round, the other guy says the earth is flat. And now you, you're seeing a lot more. I mean, in the earlier mid-20th century, it was that whole AP mentality. We have to report both sides equally. That's what 
Joseph McCarthy uh, rose to power on. And now what you're seeing, you'll see like the New York Times will say, you know, Donald Trump in a statement that is not correct um, <laughs> said this. And, and people are realizing you've got to put that in there because of, you know, um, you know, what Jim and Peter have alluded to with this instant facts and, you know, because you have to help the reader sort out the truth. But just report the facts and don't make it a fancy formula. Okay. Well, um, all right, here's, here's a, another kind of theoretical, but I think an important question. Um, how do journalists keep personal political leanings out of their stories, and should they? I don't. <laughs> um, if you pick up a copy of the Providence American, I, have, I, I do a column every, every month. And um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to address too many other issues than Donald Trump. But um, it's, it's hard to, I believe, it would be very hard to not include your personal um, leanings, at least in the language you use, if not in the content of the story. Uh, if, if, if you're writing a story and, and, and you're trying to you know, get out your point of view or the point of view of others that may be in line with your thinking, um, I, I don't know how you separate that. Um, I think the, the challenge really is, is, to be, is to be fair, uh, to, to at least identify the fact that, well, you know, this is just my opinion Mm -hmm. And it's not the opinion of a group, or it's not the opinion of the of, of the rest of the United States. I mean, it's it's so. No, yeah, I think you have to include personal. Yeah, I, I think it's important to be objective. Um, is, is that possible, though? We're human yes. beings. I well, mean. yeah. I tell my students, I, and you know, a lot of students tend to be liberal. And I said, look, you may be horrified by the anti-abortion protesters, but you need to go listen to them and put their point of view in the paper. And if you think that you're an advocate, then you're undermining your credibility, and you're also undermining the impact of your journalism, because if you're seen as a shill for one side, and you have a story that could expose some wrongdoing, then it's going to be undermined, the credibility, because they're, not, they're going to say, oh, you're just out to, you know, advocate one point of view. So yeah, we all have, you know, we all have points of view, um, but you just have to kind of put them aside and you have to get both sides of the story. I, I'm not actually a journalist. I just play one on TV. So I'm, I I'm reluctant to weigh in. <laughs> um, well, I actually, I'm going to go to the last question and then I'm going to turn it over to you all. Um, uh, and it's sort of inspired by, by you. Um, and it's about the public square. Um, so I'm going to make an argument, uh, which has been made by others, but is not necessarily true. I just would like to discuss it. So the public square is the commons. It's the place in a city where strangers meet. Uh, as they say, where public conversation about public issues produce solutions for the common good. The piazzas, the plazas, the zocalos, the bug house squares. Um, where are they? Uh, you know, Bowling Alone came out in 2000, Robert Putnam talking about how we are becoming a disconnected society. We no longer socialize with one another as we used to. We don't volunteer the way we used to, it's so on. Whether it's true or not, that's what he said. Um, in the individualized society in 2001, Sigmund Bauman talked about the largely vacant agora. Um, and it's, it's been remarked upon several times that we no longer have a place 
that is common in which we're going to see a lot of people who are unlike us and interact with them. Now, the internet could have been that place, but social media has made it very easy for us to create little tiny public squares that are just our public, they're really private squares. So the question is, and you know, you have this program, and I know you believe in this concept, how do we, how do we reimagine this place where we all meet and talk? Well, you know, I, I think we're here. <laughs> um, I, and I say that with great seriousness. I mean, yeah. my, my, my source of optimism and hope, despite all of the doom and gloom we've talked about tonight, is that there are 110 people who on a beautiful Thursday night in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, came together to talk about these issues. Uh, so I think that these, these you know, I, I, so one thing that I've learned with a lot of effort is that you don't change anybody's minds on Twitter, right? You can try, but you don't change anybody's minds. Uh, but what the internet can still be useful to us is to help us find these kinds of gatherings where we come together as citizens in a republic and we look for that common ground and we try to share that experience. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, I think, how this gets righted. Um, it's aspirational in a lot of respects. And, and, and sometimes it takes, it's harder to find these communities than we might want them to be. But they're here. They're, 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 we are, we are they. Can I say that? We are they. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, in colonial times, the public square, and I love that expression because that's what, in colonial times, the public square was the local tavern. And the newspapers, like the Boston Post, would be published with a blank page. And they would put it in the tavern, and people could all read it and share it, and then they could scribble their own news. I guess that was early Twitter. <laughs> and that's how it worked. But, you know, there's an interesting journalist named James Fallows. And, you know, there's been a lot of focus since Trump about flyover country, middle America that's forgotten and ignored. And Fallows is a pilot. And he and his wife, who's also a journalist, um, they've traveled around the country, and he just wrote a book, and they wrote a series of articles, magazine stories, where they went to these places like Erie, Pennsylvania, and they just talked to people. Oh, Erie fans here. And they just talked to people, and they find that it's not the cliche stereotypes you think. There's a lot of immigrants in these towns. There's a lot of diversity. And the other thing he found is there's a lot of optimism. You know, it's like people feel good about their own communities, but they feel bad about the national body politic because, again, of that toxicity um, that Jim referred to at the outset. So I think his model, I, I, I can't remember the name of his book. I want to read it, but I think that's very interesting where he just goes and talks to real people, finds out about real issues, what's going on in the communities. I'd, I'd like to add another, an, uh, another public square. Uh, Years ago, uh, people spent a lot more time, um, at least in my communities, going to church. Church was a major public square and a major place for information. Uh, uh, if, if you didn't, well, of course, prior to computers, I mean, if, if you had uh, the wherefore to have a, a subscription to a, a daily newspaper, that's fine. But if you didn't, you might talk about it or hear it spoken from the pulpit as to what's going on in your community and what's good or what's bad about certain issues. Um, uh, I, I dare say that there's probably not as much uh, attendance in churches today, so that public square has become a bit smaller. 
But it, yet I, I, I make reference to it because in, in, uh, in many communities of color, that's the place people go. That's, that's where they rely on, on, on real news. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's just another square. Okay. Well, we'd love to take your questions now. If you all uh, have uh, something to say, we have a microphone here, and it would be good to have you come up. Here comes someone. Thank you. So I want to address something that was sort of touched on before about sort of the role of journalists in addressing things that, let's say, President Trump might say. So Mr. Stanton said that now you might see in the New York Times they'll say falsely or incorrectly said. But in my experience, that's seldom the case. The the president called the press enemies of the people for, what, more than a year? And all they do is they keep reporting each time he says it. Recently, within the past month, I think the Boston Globe started a movement where editorial pages, ultimately for about 200-some papers, spoke about that, but only on the editorial page. So what's the responsibility of maintaining objective journalism, but acknowledging that you have to, or I suggest you have to, uh, state objectively when false things are said? And I'm sure the papers are concerned, or the media is concerned, about being uh, criticized for for being one-sided or uh, biased by, by doing that. But there are certain things that are just objectively false. So every time the president says that there's a witch hunt or that climate change is a hoax, should the press reflexively comment on that instead of keep reporting it? My concern is that when you tell a lie often enough, you persuade people, especially if it's not confronted. Yeah. I think uh, think more and more... Journalists are calling the president out. Um, I think that it speaks kind of to the, there's been a lot of debate in journalism about, he's the president, you have to cover what he says. You have to cover what he tweets, because that's his, his public square. And, you know, but the question is, how much weight do you give it? And the problem is that if you're, especially a 24-7 uh, cable station, you know, it's you can fill your time with the, you know, agita that he creates as opposed to sending your correspondence out into the field to see, well, what's really going on in the uh, Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of Education? But there are stories about those things, too. It's just a matter of weight. And then, you know, what Jim was talking about earlier, the, you know, what consumers want and what's trending, and you just have to fight that tide. And if you're a big enough news organization you can you know, say, okay, I'm gonna have somebody following the president on Twitter today, but then I'm gonna have other people going out and covering some real news. And I think there's an overload factor too after a while. It's like, okay, he tweeted again. So, but it does suck the oxygen out of the room. I, I, and I don't think that this all began with Trump. I mean, this, is, this has been a phenomenon. Uh, when I, so I got to Washington DC in 1992, 1993 and uh, you know, my first exposure to sort of national-level reporting and national-level politics was a very cynical uh, political operative who said reporters will write whatever you give them. Uh, and you know, the, and the result of that is that in a lot of national coverage, 
whatever the allegation or the assertion is, the fact that somebody made that allegation and made that assertion is the story, right? So uh, John Kerry didn't earn his three Purple Hearts, right? So I worked for him for a few years, so this was something that, that, that stayed with me. The guy earned his three Purple Hearts, but the reporting went out and it raised that question. It planted that seed. And it wasn't very good reporting, and nobody actually, if anybody took the time to actually read the citations that went with his awards in Vietnam, there's, you know, case closed. But the assertion would be reported without any follow-up. And that contributes to the idea that the media is just not reporting faithfully or accurately. They're just repeating whatever people tell them. Yeah, and, you know, I spent a, a number of years as an inspector general in, in a couple of different federal agencies. And... It, one of the things, that I, one of the phrases I think we all have heard over the years is that uh, numbers don't lie, but liars use numbers. And, okay. and, and I think that uh, uh, points a lot to what we're talking about. I mean, it's very difficult and I, and I think very dangerous for a, a reporter on news, TV, or wherever to uh, just point to blank, oh, the president just lied. Uh, because it depends on what numbers he was using to get his point across. And, and those numbers are there, they're real. Uh, but it may not be the numbers that should have been focused on in the context of what he, he was saying. There's a, um, just one minor point, but I'd like to kind of, because it came up in one of these, um, uh, one of these things that came up, uh, questions that came up from the audience earlier, and now I can't find it, but basically, <laughs> so there's a, there's a two-sided thing going on here. So after reading for the 150th or maybe more 15,000th time that there are four Pinocchios for something that was said, after a while, you as a reader say, well, of course, that always happens. And, and in, a, in a way, there's this kind of dysfunction where the fact that that's been pointed out to you no longer works because you've sort of come to expect this. Um, is that the problem of the journalist, or is it the problem of the audience, or is it some kind of dynamic between them? I think it's, it's our societal problem. I mean, I'm, I'm actually a pretty idealistic person, uh, and I love the idea of public service. I love the idea of politics as the best system possible for figuring out what our common shared interest is. And I'm going to win some, and I'm going to lose some. But it's in that in that arena, in that in that give and take of of ideas and policies and politics that we actually move society forward. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I want I want to believe that there is a way for us to manage this new information environment that is going to make us uh, able to get back to those first principles about the common good. Uh, and, and finding common solutions to common challenges. Um, I think we've got a ways to go, but I, 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 what animates me and what animates our story in the Public Square show is this idea that uh, we, the citizen, are ultimately responsible for what happens uh, in this country. And not to plug your show, but you just got picked up nationally. <laughs> we did. So that, that shows that there's an audience for this type of Journalism, I think. And it, I mean, seriously. And I think that's somewhat in a reaction to the toxic climate. People are looking for something better. So. Hey, one more point on that. I, you know, I had the pleasure of growing up in a household with my dad was a Baptist minister and my mom was an English teacher. 
And uh, of course, at six o'clock when the uh, the street lights came on, we had to find our feet under the uh, dining room table. And and when you talk about politics, I, I would also add the fact that my mom was a Republican and my dad was a Democrat. So so the conversations were very rich all, all the time. Uh, uh, my brother and I would uh, we would listen and we'd hit each other when when we heard something that was you know different or whatever. But you know if we can get back to the days of having dinner with families and talking about issues and 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 having face to face conversation. Uh, because body language means a lot in the story, um, I, I think we'd be well served. Well, and, and also, in, in not seeing political difference as a moral fault, right? Uh, I have friends who are Democrats who will not date Republicans, and I have Republican friends who are who will not date Democrats. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Um, would you? Would you? Absolutely. Like yeah. Sure. So I have a question about language, and how, does your do your papers or your institutions have criteria by which you tell your reporters the difference between, well, that's wink, wink, nudge, nudge, provocative. That's racially tinged. That's racially charged. That's racist. And how, within your papers, do you make those decisions, and how do you standardize that across the board? Good question. Well, at the Providence America, we don't censor. Uh, uh, however, uh, we also... Uh, we control, obviously, what appears in the paper in terms of, of articles, be it you know, business news or education and things of that nature. But when it comes to the editorial and comment, uh, commentary page, uh, we, we, don't, we don't censor. But um, uh, I, I, if a story comes in that's spe specifically racist or specifically uh, anti-immigrant uh, uh, and, and, the, and the content um, makes no sense, then there's no sense in printing that piece of uh, piece of information. I mean, people are obviously welcome to write it and send it in, but it's it's not going to find its way to our pages. So, I mean, if it doesn't have value, um, then uh, we we can't use space that's very very costly. Um, I have a question, but before I begin, I do want to say I did actually I know the book you're talking about. It's called Our Towns by the Fallows, oh, and it's God. great. I wouldn't go to the Rochambeau branch of the library to get it. My wife has it right now, <laughs> so you won't find it there. Um, but I'll let you know how it is. Um, so my question actually has to do with this idea of, of the sort of the, the digital public square. And um, in the last few months, you know, Donald Trump was told he can't block people on Twitter, for instance. There's this idea that Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I guess, to a lesser extent, are part of this sort of digital public square and there's a sort of tied into that is the idea of, well, if it's public square, should it be regulated? And right now, a lot, of, a lot of my friends, you know, people who are Democrats would probably say, yes, we should regulate it. Make sure that, you know, only good news is out there. And they forget that right now Donald Trump is the president and maybe they might not like the regulation that they get. And then also, again, this idea of, of asking Google or looking at how Google, you know, um, creates its search algorithm because we also forget you know, just because it pops up in a Google search doesn't mean that that is sort of the most important news of the day. It is the result of a, you know, very secretive, not open, not transparent algorithm. And, and we just sort of take it for granted that, you know, you plug something in and you get the news. And that's not the case. So I'm just curious about your thoughts. I think you're right. It's hard to regulate when you're dealing with First Amendment issues. But I think the way to go would be transparency. Yeah, force Google and Facebook, force them to put all their algorithms out there and be transparent and open. Um, like that study Jim was alluding to where they're basically socially engineering and manipulating people. Let, make them say it up front. You know, I always, you know, there's this whole debate just to shift the subject about campaign money and dark money and unfettered money is free speech. 
and I don't agree with that, but if you're going to take that tack, like there was a recent Supreme Court case, you know, make them identify themselves. Okay, yeah, you have free speech, but we have a right to know who's speaking. You know, so that would be my argument is, tra is transparency. Yes, sir. I'm uh, curious about a number of references earlier to the sort of erosion of reality-based reporting and, and uh, knowledge in the public. And I, you know, I wrote one of those editorial responses uh, when it was motivated by Marjorie Pritchard of the Boston Globe. And I quoted Hannah Arendt, the uh, 20th century philosopher who, and this is not new, I think she wrote on totalitarianism in about 1950. Mm -hmm. And what she made the case of was that people lying to you, governments lying to you, uh, politicians lying to you, are not trying to convince you that what they say is true. They're trying to make you doubt everything. And the effect of, of a pervasive culture of lying is that nobody believes anything anymore. And therefore, nobody can think clearly, nobody can judge clearly, and nobody can reach conclusions. And as she says, with, a, with people like that, if, a, if the population, the voters are like that, then you can do to them whatever you want. And I'm apprehensive that at some point, we're going to have some kind of crisis. I don't know what it is. It might be something like 9-11 or even Pearl Harbor, where people are called upon to trust the government to some extent. And that trust is now eroded. And so the question is, what does the press do? I mean, we have people who claim that 9-11 was an inside job and all that, 9-11 truthers, you know, which for the record I think is insane. But at some point, the ability of the country to defend itself, even to survive existentially, depends upon the willingness of the people to accept some kind of consensus-based reality for the government to articulate consensus-based reality and for the people to trust that the government has done so and is not lying to them for some sort of weird ulterior motive. And so what does the press do? Who wants to take that? <laughs> I would say, you know, the press does its job, do its job. And that is the big fear. That's the big worst-case scenario fear of the climate we're living in. Um, you know, there were times as a reporter I would get, you know, this goes back to the objectivity, I would get frustrated, like I write a story exposing what I think is an outrage or a wrong, and nothing happens, or they whitewash it. And finally, I came to you know, peace with that by saying, look, all I can do as a journalist is draw a line in the sand. And I can't control how people are going to react to it. And sometimes you never know the story that you least think is going to get a tremendous reaction gets a tremendous reaction. And the story you think is going to win the Pulitzer Prize vanishes without a blip. So, you know, you just have to do your job and hope that people believe you and just be transparent and try to be honest about it. I, I, so I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I also like to remind people um, that Donald Trump lost the popular vote. Uh, and so there is a mass of Americans out there who are looking for science-based, fact-based analysis and policies. Um, and not just sort of simple ideology on things like climate change or, or fighting terrorism or uh, pick your issue. Um, and, and so um, I, I think it's important that we remember that uh, it always seems when we're in the middle of the storm like, it's, it, like it, it can't get worse. Uh, well, it probably could get worse, uh, but, it, it, but the dawn is coming too. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I think that there is a, a, a deep wellspring of goodwill 
among people who want to get back to to um, just sort of uh, 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 the, the traditional give and take of politics without all the hyperbole, without all of the attacks on free institutions, including the free press, because we got things we got to do. And, and uh, again, I'm a little bit idealistic about this, but that's my hope. I spent 24 years in, um, in the federal system and some 13 years in state government and, and years in, in local government in Massachusetts. But uh, uh, people are cynics, you know, and, and, and I think obviously government workers become even more cynical than people in the public. Um, but one of the things that used to aggravate me the most was to hear someone say, oh, those government employees are all so lazy, they're not doing anything. Well, I was one of those government employees. And when people would say that to me, I'd say, well, you know, government isn't this walking, breathing thing. You know, it's made up of people who have a job, who are doing their job, who are ass assessed by their superiors to determine whether or not they're doing it properly. I mean, that's your work in government. And we can be cynical about what those, what those jobs are and how they're tailored. But again, that's really based upon the people that we elect to go to Congress to write the laws and to create the regulations that we have to live with. So I, I agree, uh, people don't trust government. They don't trust the people who work in government. They don't trust elected officials. But when there's a disaster, um, it seems like everybody's on the same phone calling for government. So. Hi. Hi. Um, we've talked a lot about the news business and the judgments that journalists and editors have to make in today's media. Uh, but I'm interested in sort of the consumer behavior piece that was talked about a little bit. You know, at the end of the day, news is a business and it responds to the market, which responds to demand. So maybe we have to change consumer behavior and not the output. So to that end, I know some of you are associated with educational institutions. What do you think we need to be doing to prepare kids and young adults to be smart readers of like news consumers? Well, Humanities we, education. We both do that. Yeah, <laughs> education, education, education. You know, we do teach um, our students to think critically. We give them examples of websites they have to vet and try to distinguish the credible ones from the non-credible ones. I've seen a lot of public libraries and, and filtering down to you know, uh, high schools and middle schools even are doing more news literacy program programs because that's, that's a, another deficiency in America is civics education. Everyone's all STEM and you know, they forget about the, uh, you know, the civics piece of the equation. But I see there's more emphasis on that now and education and you know, this is just more advice than regulatory, but um, a friend of mine says, you know, every now and then you just have to have a digital detox. You know, unplug yourself, slow your brain down, and just kind of think and reflect and do other things to, you know, get off the treadmill. You know, so uh, everybody knows the case for liberal arts education is that it creates a free thinking mind that is essential to the survival of democracy. And um, so uh, Mike's exactly spot on right about the emphasis on STEM at the expense of all else. Uh, I know social studies teachers who are lobbying to have high stakes testing so that they get the same kind of respect that math and English get. Uh, and 
don't talk to the math and English teachers about that because they'll tell you they're teaching to the test, right? Um, so the challenge that we have to face is, uh, is that we have to uh, figure out a way to spark these kinds of conversations. If it's outside the classroom, uh, that's fine. Uh, but ideally, back in high schools and middle schools and in colleges, where we teach people to think critically, to analyze the validity of argument, to understand sort of the sophistry that's out there, uh, and to be able to see through the BS. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is uh, a challenge for us as a society, and we need to probably be addressing it in the schools. And there's one other thing I'd, I would add. You probably find this too, Jim. Um, there's this whole aura now that colleges are intolerant of other points of view, and you have to teach students to kind of be open to other points of view. Um, you know, there was a protest at a college recently where... Um, you know, the students didn't want journalists to cover them. And I, I tell my students about during the civil rights era, Martin Luther King was leading his protests in the South, and there was a, a white photographer, journalist, who saw a white cop beating a black child. And the photographer put his camera down and went to help the child, a very human impulse. And later on, Martin Luther King pulled him aside and said, you know, we need you to keep taking pictures. So I try to, t you know, that's not your role to, you know, do that. You need to take pictures and document what's happening. And I try to tell my students, you know, you have to be, you know, he understood the role of the press, and now you've got this intolerance on some campuses about other points of view. And it's important. And, and you know, you do get the right-wing people who come and try to stir the pot and create, you know, controversy and, and, a, and a confrontation. But I think, you know, they just need to be open to more points of view. But they're all in silos. So you have to break those down and challenge them. I, I, I also want to point out that um, these comments about liberal arts edu education are in no way influenced by the fact that the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities <laughs> is sponsoring tonight's program. Yes, sir. Um, all the great philosophical questions have been asked. So <laughs> I'm, if we think of Rhode Island as being hyper-local in the scheme of things, I have a okay. two-part question that's hyper-hyper-local one involving television, one involving the newspaper. Um, one, with respect to something like, like the journal, uh, is if we had our own Jeff Bezos, who would buy it from, let's say, Gatehouse, would that in any way improve the situation with respect to local news and the number of reporters and the things they cover. And the second part is the Sinclair business with Channel 10. And I guess my concern there is, I don't know why, because it's an affiliate of NBC, NBC doesn't have some control over that, and the ability to say, this is not Oz, or in some way identify it. So that's my question. Um, yeah, I mean, when Gatehouse bought the journal about four years ago, um, I don't have all the details in my fingertips, but there was a local group of businessmen and women who wanted, who tried to buy the paper. Some of them are on our board, actually. And they were outbid. <laughs> they were outbid because Gatehouse has the whole synergy thing going because they publish all these New England newspapers, and they paid a premium because the value of the journal printing press had more value to them because they could print all these other newspapers like New Bedford, Fall River, et cetera. And that was tragic. Now other people say, well, you've got to get a local group 
they've got to have the funding. You've got to be able to acquire the paper without having a lot of debt, like what happened in Chicago with the Tribune several years back. Um, but yeah, I mean, but you know, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know the insides of Gatehouse's finances, but I don't see them selling the journal, and I don't see a local group. If that was going to happen, it would have happened. Um, but tragically, if you look at some of our local business leaders, um, they own the Paw Sox, and look what they did as far as their commitment to Rhode Island. So, you know. And as far as the other piece, Sinclair Media, yeah, I mean, that's a problem. But again, be discriminating. I mean, you kind of, they've kind of been outed. You can kind of tell when this faux news commentary on national issues, and that's different than, you know, a local reporter who you know going up to the State House and reporting on what's going on with Nick Mattiello. And, you know, I think you just have to make those distinctions because every media going back to colonial times had some sort of a bias. I'd like to just take this back again into the national scene. I've spent <laughs> okay. the last 30 years listening to people who do not share my opinions and whose opinions I don't share in return. But one of the things I've noticed is that the more I'm willing to listen, the less vituperativeness there is in them trying to tell me what they think is right. And one of the things that I have noticed over the years, and one of the great appeals of Donald Trump, is people always wanted to know what would happen if they yelled fire in a crowded theater. Well, we've got a president who yells fire in a crowded theater every single day, and we're not saying anything. We're not addressing that disruption in, in that way. And I'm wondering how far back we have to go. Do we need to have people sitting around the dinner table and parents saying, you don't do that, or if you hear this, you need to respond this way. Do we do it, there's that wonderful young woman, do it through the public schools? Where, where do we do this to regain some control over the conversation and not just be held helpless when somebody is saying something that's really dangerous? That's a very good question, and, 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 and you're right. Um, I, I think most of us wait for, some, for the firemen to come to put the fire out. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, again, I'll, I'll get back to what I mentioned in term, and, and you alluded to it yourself, is you know, sitting around that dining, dining room table listening to my parents and listening to different points of view, quite frankly, but for me to extract from those conversations um, sort of a, a middle of the road, and, and, and that helped me. Uh, it, it, it may have increased my cynicism on some issues, but that too was good because that allowed me to ask questions. So uh, I, I don't think there's a, a, an immediate answer to what you're suggesting, but I think if we can get back to face-to-face -face conversations, if we can get back to civility in those conversations, if we can get back to pointing out um, what we think rather than what you should think, uh, I, I think uh, we go a long way to, to solve that problem. I want to get back to this man asked a pretty elegant question. I don't know how well it was answered. It was about the newspapers that decided that they'd go all in and unmask themselves by saying they're against the current administration that's in the White House. And did, I, I don't know that I got an answer. I heard I a I'm definite answer. I don't remember that. that. Did they say that? Are you talking about the Boston the editorials? Well, by, put, by putting out that editorial. Okay. Well, the editorial well, that's an editorial. About, yeah. And it wasn't about Trump is bad. It's about journalists are not the enemies of the people. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was about. And 
you know, there was a lot of controversy about that. And, you know, I, I don't think it's in a... You know, it speaks back to some people are saying, well, why doesn't the press fight back if they're constantly being called the enemies of the people and their credibility is sought to be undermined? Because you look at the kind of things that set Trump off, and they're usually factual stories that do not portray him or his administration in a good light, and his knee-jerk reaction was to say fake news and then to carry it a step further and call uh, reporters enemies of the people. And if you look at um, some of these uh, film footage of some of these rallies, where he just kind of whips up the crowd like an angry mob and they get very nasty and abusive uh, to reporters. I think there was a reporter from CNN, Jim Acosta, and there was some really interesting video, not only showing the, the nastiness towards him and the hostility and rage, but also showing him engaging with people. In a, you know, again, we have to have these face-to-face -face conversations. And he took it and he engaged with people and, and, and had some constructive dialogue amidst the chaos. Um, but I think, you know, an editorial you know, standing up for the rights of reporters. When you look at, you know, violence against reporters is unprecedented worldwide. And I think the mo this year is the deadliest year in U.S. history for journalists being killed. And when you have the president calling journalists enemies of the people, I think what prompted this was that coupled with the, the shooting at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland. And, uh, you know, those people are not enemies of the people. I mean, yes, they're flawed, they're humans, they have their biases, but they a lot of them go to work trying to do a sincere job, and they're not the enemies of the people, they are the people. And I think that that's what, and, and a lot of times they're reporting on local news, they're not reporting on Trump's administration, but I think that that, you know, toxic atmosphere was something that journalists needed to fight back on. Well, he does have an inability to use the right words, so when he says enemies of the people, it shouldn't be enemies of the people. It would be more like that the journalists are out to undermine his message, his administration, and so he doesn't choose the right word, but even the things you brought up, the shooting at that Gazette, mm -hmm. if you look into that story more, it was more of a disgruntled, employee or whatever Absolutely. it was. So yeah. it, it wasn't anything that he's whooping up. The whooping up is coming from the other side, such as uh, Steve Scalise, who got shot on a ball field in Washington. Mm -hmm. And there were, it, that could have been a whole lot worse. Yeah. And that, that story quickly got swept away. But you see, that, that's the issue. You know, away. the job of journalists, and believe me, Hillary Clinton did not love reporters. Barack Obama did not love reporters. Bill Clinton did not love reporters. It's, it's not a Republican versus Democrat thing. It's, you know, reporters' job is to hold um, public officials in power accountable. And the president is the most powerful person in the world. And if you're, are you undermining his administration by writing stories about how they're locking up children in cages and they haven't had a well thought out policy and just raising questions? And then they can defend it and say this is for border security, whatever. But if something makes the president look bad, that is not undermining his administration. Maybe he's undermining himself. Well, and that, that doesn't mean Republican. Yeah. I mean, again, you can go back to presidents of all stripes and they've not, none of them had kind words for the press. I would say that it's more the not reporting the good things that are happening with his policies and, you know, children being locked up in cages, you know, that's, that's an extreme on that side because they're not being locked up in cages. That policy was 
under the Obama administration. And incidentally, Obama was uh, president for eight years. Nobody even talks about him anymore. He, it's well, as that's if been he talked never about was. a lot. His Obama's no, no, it's never well, brought it, up. A, it's it's like he was never even president. No, well, I, and what I was saying is his immigration the comparison policies. to Trump to mm -hmm. Obama doesn't really happen. How would he have done it when the attacks go on? So we'll leave it at that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Twenty-five years ago, the spring of 1993, late winter. I used to get in my car at noontime and drive around so that I could listen to a voice on talk radio say, America held hostage day 42, which was Rush Limbaugh referring to the Clinton presidency. And it amazed me that people actually listened to this guy. And I wanted to go out and listen to him to hear what he had to say. This was before Twitter. It was before Instagram, it was before Facebook, it was before email. All of that stuff is now on 24-7 cable news. It's on an internet that never stops. And the one thing I've noticed, especially on Facebook, is that people, and I'm talking about people in my age bracket, don't walk the middle of the line anymore at all. They are in one extreme or the other. And if that's the case, and if the news outlets, as we've discussed them today, as they exist, are primarily concerned with the number of clicks and the amount of profit, how far down the road are you really looking before you think that the hope, the little hope that you suggested, might be available? Profound question. And I would, I, I would put my, my, uh, my marbles in, in the basket of hope that we have uh, journalists, journalists, <laughs> teachers, who are in schools who are trying to develop journalists. The more journalists there are, the less that problem becomes a, a bigger issue. Hope is in young people, and hope is in information. Hope is in good information. Uh, and, and so uh, I believe that there's a great deal to be hopeful for as long as we don't have a situation uh, where journalists and, and media is controlled by the government, if you will, or uh, big business, if you will. As long as you have the opportunity to create a, a, a local newspaper or a local talk show or or something that is, that is profoundly local and isn't about money, I think the hope is there. We, we get a wonderful opportunity to restock our hope uh, every two years with the elections that have national import. So uh, to the question about how long do we have to look down the road, what is it, about 50 days? Uh, no, it's about 40 days. Um, uh, and, and it's an opportunity to renew the republic every time we do that. And so that's, that's where my hope comes from right now. Yeah, I mean, I think I would echo what they've said and that Rhode Island's motto is hope and that if you didn't have hope, you wouldn't be here tonight. So thank you for coming. Thank you. And uh, so, so I want to thank uh, Jim Lutis and uh, Peter Wells and Mike Stanton. 
And I do appreciate your patience, your time, and your attention. You've been a great audience. Thank you, and good night. That was Prest's panel discussion about the media and democracy, recorded in September 2018. Prest is produced by me, Mary Quintus, the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities, and the Public's Radio. This podcast is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative. Administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils, the initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, and journalism. Thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership.